Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, now part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Author and artist Lydia Conklin's short story collection, Rainbow Rainbow, created quite a splash when it was released in May of 2022. It was called An Impressive and Beautiful Collection by Lori Moore, A Gorgeous Ode to Queer Life by Melissa Phoebos, and A Triumph by Justin Torres. Lydia visited the zeitgeist on A Mighty Blaze to talk with host Jane Roper about why they enjoy the challenge of writing from a kid's point of view how their visual art and comic creation influences their prose, the difficulties of growing up queer in the 90s, and how they arrived at the collection's colorful title. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Jane and her talented guest, Lydia Conklin. Hey everyone, uh, welcome to the Zeitgeist on a Mighty Blaze. I am your host, Jane Roper, and with me today is Lydia Conklin. So happy to have Lydia with us. Uh, they are an assistant professor of fiction at Vanderbilt University. Previously, they were the Helen Zell Visiting Professor in Fiction at the University of Michigan. They've received very many prestigious awards they're so impressive. I can't even, I'm not going to list them all because there's so many, but let's list just a few. Uh, Stegner Fellowship at Stanford, uh, a Rona Jaffe Writers Award, three Pushcard Prizes, fellowships from McDell, Yado, uh, Hedgebrook, VCCA. I love VCCA. That place is awesome. I've been there three times. Oh, yeah. Uh, Millay and Harvard University, among others. Uh, they were also uh, the 2015-2017 Creative Writing Fellow in Fiction at Emory University. Lydia's fiction has appeared in Tin House, American Short Vision, Fiction, The Southern Review, The Gettysburg Review, and elsewhere, and is forthcoming from The Paris Review. Um, they've also drawn graphic fiction for Lenny Letter, Drunken Boat, and the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, and cartoons for The New Yorker and Narrative Magazine. I checked out your art. It's so cool. I love it. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah, it's it's excellent. Um, Lydia's story collection, Rainbow, Rainbow, which is I like one of my favorite covers of the year honestly like it's been sitting it's been sitting around my house and every time I see it I'm like ooh, my eyes go right to it it's so awesome um it was published in June um as one rave reviews it was named a most anticipated book by time nerd daily lit hub lgbtq reads electric literature the millions and seahawk Lori Moore oh, swoon um, <laughs> said Lydia Conklin writes with humor and tenderness about the way we love now. Rainbow Rainbow is an impressive and beautiful collection. Uh, Melissa Phoebos, author of Girlhood, says, what a gorgeous ode to queer life in all its awkward, tragic, hilarious, erotic, and joyful forms. Um, and my favorite little snippet was from Justin Torres, who said, each story is full of wonder and trouble. I love that. That was so cool. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome. I'm so happy to meet you. And I'm really excited to talk about your book. As I was saying in like our backroom chat, I really um, wanted my kiddo to read the book. 
um, and I had these visions because they're um, genderqueer, lesbian, and so much of what's in the book I think would be really relevant to them. And I was like, you could be my guest host and we'll ask questions together. It'll be this like cool mother child thing. And they were like, mm, yeah, no, bye. Thanks. Out of never watch this YouTube thing now. So <laughs> dang. Oh, well, I tried. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, I, I seem to be doing this lately in my interviews, so I'll do it now also. It, we'll start with the title, Rainbow Rainbow. Can you talk about the title a bit? Oh, sure, yeah. So the, the title, um, I, I really like when story collections have a different title that's not any of the titles of the short stories because I mm -hmm. love titles, so I want to have yeah. like, an extra one. Sure. Um, so it doesn't, it's not one of the stories, but it does appear in Ooh, the Suburbs as this fantastical, not fantastical, but basically a lie that, that a child, that a teen tells someone else that, that she's been in this band that didn't exist. And right. the, she has this whole thing about the metaphor, um, about what the band is a metaphor for. So I, I kind of felt like that moment of, of disconnection, slight dishonesty, but also trying to form a connection kind mm. of stood for a lot that happens in the book. And, and then there's also a rainbow somewhere in every story. So yes. Yeah. I look for that, that little, that little Easter egg. Um, and of course, you know, I, I mean, everyone knows like the rainbow flag, the pride flag, um, but also, you know, I don't know, rainbow speaks to like a wide spectrum of colors and, and whatever experiences. Um, and I, I don't know, I thought there was like, I, there, there was almost something a little cheeky about it too. Like rainbow, rainbow, like intentional, but it's kind of like a post queer or like just a response to queer media that's come in the past. So I feel like it's like a redo of, Hmm. redo in some ways yeah yeah that's interesting um it also it, yeah I was also thinking about how it almost feels like the the rainbow flag has kind of been co-opted in a lot of ways like it's just gotten so ubiquitous and corporatized and I don't know if you ever went to like the Boston pride parade when you were living in Boston but I felt like I went a few years ago and it was like half of the groups that were marching were just like big groups like they just represented different companies in Boston and they all had like the rainbow and, and you know and it was like here's the so-and-so bank you know pride logo and like every company had their their rainbow logo and I, I don't know it was like yeah just oh yeah no that's yucky yeah I I went to the I went to one in Provincetown this summer and there and there was all these flags that would be like a rainbow flag with like Verizon on it yeah like, yeah Ex exactly right yeah Anyway, yeah. Um, so I I thought what was and and certainly I'm not like the first to pick up on this. It's in some of your reviews and stuff. But a lot of the characters in your stories, you meet them at kind of moments of transition in in their lives, in their bodies, in their understanding of themselves. Um, you know, they sort of that. In, in some cases, it's on a, you know, kids who are moving into adolescence, adolescents moving into adulthood, relationships at a point of transition. Um, so uh, assuming that, like, you know, that that's sort of a, a motif that you enjoy working with, what, what do you feel like is ripe for story in those moments? And why is that something that you gravitate toward? 
Um, I think, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of drama and transitional moments. Certainly, like, my life has been full of many transitions, like, gender transition, but also, like, I moved nine times in the last 12 years, and I hate transitions, so... (laughs) I'm like cursed and haunted by transitions that I hate. Yeah. But um, so I think that's where I found a lot of the drama in my life. And a lot of the stories have the seeds of, of my own experience in mm. them. Um, but yeah, I think just fiction, I, I don't know, like that liminal place between spaces or like the moment when you realize you have to do something, but you don't have the guts to do it yet, or you know something's true, but you can't reveal it. Like, I feel like those moments are are so fraught that they're, mm. they're interesting to explore through fiction. Yeah, right. Because there's, yeah, there is a, a built-in tension and sort of we as the readers see what's going on. We see this, like, this truth or this discovery or change about to bust out. And it it automatically creates a sense of suspense because we're wondering like, is it going to happen or is it not going to happen? And um, yeah, I, I noticed that both with uh, like some of the relationships, uh, the romantic relationships that you explore, it's like we get in there and there is like immediately like, Oh, something's a little off balance or a little uncomfortable. Um, and where is that going to go? Or a kid who's, you know, y- you have the example of um, there are a couple stories where it was like a, a young girl who sort of was figuring out their sexuality and it was almost like you wanted them to kind of, or, or their gender and like just bust out and own it. Um, right. Um, yeah. But I'm interested in that moment. Cause I think that's a moment that a lot of queer people have is when they know what's up and then there's varying lengths of time before they can say anything or do take action. And I think that's an interesting moment when you know, but you, aren't ready to take action yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that liminality. Yeah. Um, and yeah, liminality is such a powerful, like, fraught, like you said, like a fraught time in, in general. And then it's charged that much more when you're sort of on the cusp of a really huge change or, or something that's going to affect your life and people around you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so like, as I was saying earlier, like some of the stories are from kid or adolescent point of view, right? And then some are adult. Um, and I'm really curious to know from you, what are the things you like about doing a kid voice versus an adult? And what do you feel like, I don't know, each each gives you that the other can't? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, I feel like I, I I enjoy writing about kid perspective because I feel like I somehow have that remember that time very clearly and like remember I think a lot of people like to forget the hard parts about being a kid or or the awareness and the wisdom that's there because it's Mm. it's weird to think that kids are so much more aware than we like to think they are so I, I like that time and it's also like a fun time to write about because people will just tell you you're an idiot if they feel like <laughs> like they're not, there's no social norms. So it's just like people just say what's on their mind. Uh, on the other hand, I, I normally usually write from adult. I think seven of the 10 stories are from yeah. adult perspective. So that's obviously closer to, to my experience now. And there's the difficulty about writing about kids is the stakes aren't as sometimes as high depending mm. on what's going on but in adulthood 
the decisions you make just have so many more repercussions on other people. So yeah. it's more dramatic in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point. It's true. It's, and yet like the, um, the emotional stakes for kids, like when you're in those moments where you feel everything so hard. Um, and I thought, I thought you did a great job of that with, with the, the stories that were from a kid's point of view, you really like feel that like pain or feelings of rejection or feelings of longing. Um, I, yeah, anyway, I, I, I was impressed by that, like that immediacy. Cause I think we all like have those moments when we were kids we're like in awe of that, that girl who we thought there, there are a couple of times there was characters like slightly older or more advanced or confident girls who were sort of, you know, the character would be in thrall of and um, sort of holding their breath, seeing, you know, if they were going to be rejected or if their desire for them would be accepted or not. And, um, yeah, totally. Yeah. The, yeah. The, and you have no, like when you're a kid, you have no like history of yourself to fall back on and to know like, Oh, like if, if this heartbreak happens, it, I'll be fine. It's happened a million times before it's like the end of the world because you just don't have any history to be comforted by basically. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Right. You don't have the perspective to say, you know, yeah. this too shall pass. Right. Um, the um, A lot of your stories use humor, right? But in sort of subtle ways, uh, there was a great quote that I was trying and trying to Google like haplessly before a little while ago. So I could quote it, but the S and I could not find it. I found out. Okay. But the essence of it is like if you put something weird in the midst of the ordinary, it serves to sort of um, charge the ordinary with greater like meaning and significance um, or sort of set it into relief. That's definitely not the quote. It was way more succinct. Than that. But I was thinking like it stuck out to me this moment right in, in one of the stories where um and this is not a spoiler because it happens right at the beginning, but a dog drowns. Someone, a, a woman's taking care of her girlfriend's dog, right? And and the dog ends up going out into the ice chasing a squirrel and, and drowning, which is not funny, but there also was some weird dark humor about it, the way it was written. And so I, I and then there were other instances too, like the, oh, I think it was the same story. She works at a vegan hot dog stand or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just these little quirky points that they really um, were able to like light up things around them. Um, so anyway, I'm curious to know how you feel about you, like what your goals are and what, how you like to use humor in your writing. Ooh, yeah. I, I mean, I just love how he, I, I, first of all, I'm like, when I'm writing, I'm trying to go for like the most, the strongest emotional reaction I can elicit. So whether it's mm -hmm. like, because I'm not disgust, obviously, but like, I want someone to either cry or laugh. And then I'm like, I won if I can get someone to do those things. So I think yeah. like, what can cause both of those reactions is surprise. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I just was reading Revolutionary Road, rereading it because I'm teaching it in my mm -hmm. MFA class. And like, the most tragic event of the book happens as like a clause at the end of this long paragraph of mundane things and then when mm -hmm. you get to that moment it's like oh my god like it just slams you and you like yeah. can't not cry basically so right. I think 
humor, it, humor comes from surprise as well. Cause it's like strange elements that are charming or something put together in such a way that you react with laughter and, and sadness is the same. So I yes. think that's why I love both making my stories balance with both of those. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. It's incongruity and, and um, yeah, so sort of subverting expectation, right. With humor so that um, it kind of, it puts you on your toes more in a way. Um, yeah. Which is what you want from fiction is to like illuminate things in such a way, like you were saying with the weird that people see things have to see things in a different way. Cause if the whole book is just, things everyone already knows and the way everyone already sees the world. It's like, why read the book? You could just live in your own mind, but um, you want to be constantly surprising the reader and startling them and making them see things in a new way. Right. Yeah. And it also adds so much more um, like uh, emotional or atmospheric texture because when you're reading a story where um, like, like the, I think maybe it was the very first story where um, you have a relationship that's kind of troubled. And it's at this moment where these um, two people are trying to figure out if they want to have um, a child together. Um, and it's, it feels very, I mean, it feels it's, it's great. It's really well written and everything. And it's, but it, it has this like by, by design, a sort of like weightiness to it. And then we hear that like, the main character like draws a cartoon with a, a comic with lesbian turtles who like slap their chest up against each other when they try to hug. And it's just this charming, funny thing. And I don't, it, it's, it adds that texture that it's like, Oh yeah. You know, even the most serious and weighty and fraught of situations, it's like, there's also kooky playful stuff that's happening in the midst of it all. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I like, I love showing that both those sides. Yeah. Speaking of uh, comic turtles, lesbian turtles. Um, so you are also an artist, as we mentioned, you do beautiful and funny and um, drawings and comics. Um, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time. This is like a totally unoriginal question, but I am of course like curious about the cross pollination between the visual art and the writing and how they fuel each other or fight with each other. Oh yeah. So I feel like 
the pro well the first of all the process is so different like yeah. writing I feel like the, the reason I I went down the path of writing fiction is because I feel like it's the hardest thing yeah. I ever <laughs> I ever tried to do so it's just like constant mental strain and like thinking and I was just talking to another writer last night about how it's like you just have to make a thousand decisions every single day it's like yeah. constant deciding and yeah but comics is very different because it there's a lot of elements to the process that are very mindless where you just are drawing lines and inking over pencils and and doing photoshop and slicing up pieces of paper and stuff like that so it has a more meditative quality to it where i can i like the balance where i can just in the evening do that and like listen to a book on tape or something and just calm my mind um but like content wise the biggest way the comics influenced my write my prose writing was like back way long ago like before grad school I was very scared of writing dialogue. And mm. since my comics are basically all dialogue, kind of like a screenplay, um, it just loosened me up with dialogue and like made me less afraid mm. of doing it, of writing it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense because you have to have the same economy of dialogue in in comics as you do in, in fiction. You know, you need to yeah. strip it down to the most elemental that makes a lot of sense. Have you ever had um, an idea jump from one medium to the other where like, I don't know, you think of something in, in a comic and you're like, oh, hey, I could use that over here. Um, the only example is the story you were just referencing, the first story in the book, because obviously the comic comes into the book. But more than that, like basically the same emotional issue I was dealing with in my personal life I made into both a comic which is my series lesbian catalogs and to the story Laramie time that's the first story in the book and they're very different they the product's very different but at the heart they have the same kind of emotional question mm -hmm. yeah yeah um I wanted to talk about the story um Sunny for a second because I thought um uh, what was so fascinating to me in that story was you really captured the an inter intergenerational um, views of queerness and gender. Um, and you, you had a teenager, right? And then the, the teens, um, I, I guess I, I can't say uncle or aunt, right? I mean, they're yeah, in they're themselves. Yeah. I should say a character's nibbling, right? That, that yeah. puts it in the other way <laughs> around. It's easier. Um, but it really, you know, and and Sunny, the the kid, the teenager is at this convention of queer YouTubers. And it, I mean, first of all, like very familiar world because my kiddo's like steeped in that world as well. But, you know, Gen Z, you know, teenagers and young adults, there's there's that access to this whole world online of other kids who are exploring their gender and sexuality. There's this whole like incredible like vocabulary of, of labels and classifications. And so there's this great openness versus, you know, you have the other character who's you know just starting to emerge into their own, figuring out their gender. And yet it's not like, and, and sort of didn't have this, but it's not like necessarily one is easier. The It's still hard for the kids, right? I guess is my, you know, yeah. what I observed. 
Yeah, totally. Because I feel like for me, like growing up, like things were very hard, obviously for queer people in the 90s, because it, you were just made fun of relentlessly if anyone could smell it on you. And it was like, but at the same time, there was sort of like a, a slow, a very slow, like widening of possibility and acceptance mm-hmm. that very slowly happened from like my childhood up until basically the Trump Trump got elected. So yeah. like, but in recent years, it's like, this has been the first time in my life that I've seen like a narrowing of possibility and a shutting down of, uh, I mean, there always have been shutting down of rights or whatever, but it just feels like things are getting worse for the first time. So even though things were probably in many ways worse back then, since they were getting better, it felt different. So I feel mm-hmm. like, but yeah, and I think also like for kids, queer young people, queer Zoomers, it's like there's a lot of other horrible difficulties. Like, yeah, if you're a YouTuber, it's like you're you're basically, I would not have wanted my thoughts to be embedded online from when I was like 12 years old or something. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what I would have ever said. Right, right. Oh my God, I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah. So that and getting and and the pressures around that and being online and just the scary things about that are, are a whole new yeah bed of snakes that that young people have to wade through that like I didn't have to so it's just like it's not necessarily that it's easier or harder it's just different challenges right yeah it seems it seems like there's also my sense is there's a lot of pressure among zoomers like in the sort of queer space to like put a stake in the ground and be like, this is what I am. Like, these are my labels. These are my, you know, this is the flag. This is the, um, you know, it's very much about classifying yourself, which um, I, I think is really empowering in a lot of way. And it's, it's, it's like natural for kids and teens to want to like belong to a tribe. And at the same time, it's like, maybe it, it can sort of shut them down and become this narrow, narrowing thing where there's bickering over the, I don't know, I I hear like the bickering over the definitions, like, no, you can't be this if you're also this, and you can't be this if you're also this. So it seems like. (laughs) I know there's a lot, there's a lot of like infighting that goes on within. And I think, you know, that's, that happens. And like the writing community of Twitter happens in all kinds of like small communities and marginalized communities. And I think part of it is just, it's easier to yell at, to hate someone or be angry at someone who's not got power than to actually look at who's actually oppressing you because I mean, maybe it's too obvious and maybe it's also like what, there's nothing you can do. So it does end up happening. So you touched on this before, but uh, the time period over which you wrote these stories um, did you, I mean, were a lot of them written sort of in the the pre Trump era and then some after um yeah I so I'm not sure about the breakdown but a few of the stories are from like as early as 2010 and Mm -hmm. then some were written around like 2015 and then some obviously like there's a COVID one a couple of them the last story and and the third story Pink Knives were both just written in the year before I published the book yeah. So I'm just, I'm curious how the sort of growing, you know, anti-trans sentiments, you know, that are getting louder and, and scarier, you know, has that informed your writing at all? 
Yeah, it has for sure. Because I think like when I finished my MFA like 10 years ago, I was like, oh, I, I finished the book because I had a lot of stories that were most, a lot of them set in the 90s and it was just a little too one note. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to, I needed to like write more and experience more and have the world actually, it turned out, change more and have horrible things happen in politics and good things happen in politics yeah. for, in order for the book to have like a wider lens on, on queer experience, like through yeah. the, I guess it, it goes over like three decades in the book basically. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and it, it does seem like um, probably when you were starting to write um, the, you, these stories, maybe it didn't feel quite as urgent or quite as political <laughs> in a way as it does now. It's sort of like been right. thrust upon you that like, oh, hey, this is, you know, some people would see this as a very political book, even though I'm sure that's not your intent. Well, I did feel like it was always political for me because I felt like even in the time in like, you know, 2010 to 2016 or whatever before Trump's election, when people were like, oh, look, it's fine to be queer. Nobody cares. Why are you complaining about it? And all this kind of stuff. And it was like, yeah, but, you know, everyone my age went through horrible trauma being queer, who is a queer young person or aware of being queer out as being queer. And, and yeah. then all of a sudden the culture is like, you know, is horrible to you. And then five years later is like, why are you upset? It's like people are walking around with trauma and it's like, right, that's so right. you, and it's not like everything was fine, but no. um, things were crazily much better and more open than they had been. But still mm. it's like, even if everything magically was fine and there was round the clock acceptance, people would still be walking around with trauma of the way things used to be. So sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so curious to know a bit about how the collection came together, right? I'm sure you had, you know, tell me about some of the considerations, what to, you know, with when you're thinking about what to include, what not to include, the order of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was hard because I, I had a lot of stories and I, I finally, I decided early on that all this people would be queer all the protagonists had to be queer because I had some stories about people who are like very much on the edge of queerness but not as legibly queer and so I like didn't include those and um I in terms of order my my original manuscript had Laramie time first and then my editor wanted to put counselor of my heart the dog story you were mentioning mm -hmm. first but um some people thought that it wouldn't be great to open a book with a dog dying. dying. <laughs> because I actually never expected that that was the story that that would upset people, would affect people the most. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, I'm glad that we listened to that and, and put Larry in converse. Yeah, dead, dead dogs are, are sad. And it was it was kind of <laughs> shocking. It was like, oh my, oh my God, the dog actually... Jeez. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Were there any that you had to leave out that you didn't want to leave, like that were hard to let go of? Yeah, there was one actually. It, it was the it was the newest one, and um, I really wanted to include it, but there just wasn't time. I, I it takes me a long time to get a story into the good shape mm -hmm. for publication, so there just wasn't time for that one. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it'll be in the next, maybe in the next one. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Depending on. So this is a great question um, from Bojena. Um, hi, Bojena. Um, which of the stories is particularly close to your heart and why? And which one was a struggle? That's a great question. Yeah, I think in some ways I feel like Pioneer is the closest to my heart because mm. I don't know. I like how it has kind of an extended metaphor of the dressing up for it's basically about a kid who dresses up as an ox for an Oregon Trail reenactment and realizes in doing so that they're trans basically but not consciously but you you know that's what's happening and I like how I could go into a weirder place with the story because there was like the pageant and the way the kids were taking it too seriously. There was that level of reality and then the level of actual reality. And then there was a level of what Coco knows and what the kids can sense. Yes. So I would say that. And the, the one that was the biggest struggle for me was cheerful until next time, because um, I just, I think I just had to rewrite that one the most because mm -hmm. after the main character Asher makes some decisions and acts in certain ways that I would never act. So it was hard for me at times to inhabit his perspective and put myself in the position of someone who would make those choices. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what about um, actually, is there, was there a story that, you know, along the way, as you were writing, it surprised you where something where it started in one place and it ended up in a completely different place? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I do tend to write most of my stories in such a way that I like don't know where they're going, because otherwise, mm -hmm. I'm so too bored writing it. Yeah. Um, I think like Laramie time, like, there was there's an I won't give it away. But there's like, a, a, an action at the end that's pretty shocking that I didn't know the story was going to go to that place and and yeah. so that, that surprised me when when I realized the character was heading in that direction yeah. that was an excellent excellent ending yeah and okay. yes uh, unexpected but you know surprising but inevitable right the Flannery O'Connor formula for a good ending yeah. uh, another question are some of these stories true um all of them have truth in them and things that have happened to me are in all of them. Some of them are more accurate to reality than others. Um, but yeah, like they, all of them, all of them are full of things I've lived with. But for example, like the dogs, the dog situation of the drowning dog, like that didn't happen to me, but it happened to a friend. So sometimes mm -hmm. it's, it's things that happened around me that then I incorporate, but right. largely I draw on my own experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, for, I think for all of us who write fiction, it's, it, there's so much of, we pull from real life, but then we'll disguise it or, you know, we'll get at the, uh, the nugget of the, the point of the story, but then wrap it up in different clothing. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if the second the second part of this question was how many stories are there or how many of them are true, but there how many stories are there in the book? I forget. <laughs> oh, there are 10 stories. 10 yeah. stories, yes. And it it's um I, I was sort of like, yeah, consuming them one by one, like little I was like giving myself a chocolate, you know, like, oh I'm gonna oh, have yeah. I'm gonna have a chocolate for dessert. Because um anyway. Uh, 
So here's the beautiful book again. I think we will put up a link to bookshop.org where folks can buy it. Uh, and do, do you want to give a shout out to your fave um, uh, store in Nashville? Oh, is that where Ann Patchett's store is? Yeah, Parnassus. Parnassus. And there's also um, a store called Novelette that just opened and one called The Bookshop. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, oh, wait, one final, final question. Are you working on something else? Are they forcing you to write a novel? I know like that's always like, now you have to write a novel. <laughs> yeah. they, they didn't force me because I wanted to do it. And okay, I, good. But I am, I am working on a novel. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will look forward to reading that when it is in the world. And in the meantime, best of luck with this book. And um, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for A Mighty Blaze Podcast. My debut novel, a fast-paced adventure called Herrick's End, is available now if you want to check it out. Tune in next week for an episode featuring Eli Craner. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.